On today's podcast, we look at a difficult phrase in the Apostles' Creed. It's hard to get our minds around it. Jesus descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. These three statements can each stand on their own, but together the actions described change the world, change our lives, and bring hope of eternity. As Paul wrote, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. So bodily resurrection is a core doctrine of the church. The shocking truth is that God in his mercy and love has given us a choice between life and death, heaven and hell, mercy and wrath. Join pastors Kirk Sexton and Bruce Johnson as we discuss the truth that Jesus will go to great depths to bring us to God. Welcome to the Full Dig Podcast. I'm Pastor Kirk Sexton, and with me, as always, is my good friend and colleague, Pastor Bruce Johnson. It's darn fine to be with you again, Kirk. Bruce Johnson, the rocker. <laughs> yeah, Kirk and I and a lot of the staff were involved in a skit that we performed at the talent show, the kids' talent show uh, Sunday, and it was really fun. We got to uh, pretend that we were rockers for a night. Right. Well, you've got a lot of props. I, I heard a lot of people making comments that said, who wrote that? Go, That's <laughs> Pastor Bruce. It's one of his gifts, one of his many gifts. I, I make funny songs available for different events at, here at church. Well, the Apostles' Creed series continues on, and today we were looking at He Descended Into Hell, The Third Day He Rose Again From the Dead, He Ascended Into Heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Which is a confusing part of the Apostles' Creed for many people, that descent into hell, what, what in the world does that mean? And Pastor Lynn did a good job trying to explain that it talks about the suffering of Christ and how that Christ was willing to suffer to the utmost for us, mm-hmm. which is a wonderful thought, the love of God demonstrated. Some traditions have removed this. It's so difficult. Well, some pastors that are uncomfortable with it or don't know what to do with it and say, well, it's not well attested in Scripture. Why do we have that in there? And we'll talk about where we have verses that are used to by the early church to insert this language into the Apostles' Creed. Mm-hmm. Well, we used uh, the, the one sort of cryptic reference that we find in Scripture, 1 Peter 3:18 through 22. And that reads, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in former times did not obey, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah during the building of the ark in which a few, that is, eight lives, were saved through water. And baptism, which this prefigured, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers made subject to him. I love that text where it says, 
in order to bring you to God. Right. Uh, a real emphasis on the good news of Jesus. Now, this is not the only place where you have uh, scripture language that led the early church to say that Christ descended into the hell, descended to the utmost for us. Another passage is in the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, uh, verses 7 through 9. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean? Except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So those are the two texts, the main texts that the early church looked to, to say, well, what did Jesus do between the time that he died on the cross and Easter morning when he was raised from the dead? And it's interesting when you look at the Apostles' Creed as it was written in Greek and then as it was written in Latin, it has a different emphasis. In the Greek version, which Pastor Lynn mentioned, mm -hmm. it uses uh, the word for uh, Hades or the, uh, the low, lowest, the netherworld, mm -hmm. uh, two different Greek words that both uh, communicate that same thing. Right. But in the Latin version, it doesn't talk about the place, it talks about the people he went to. It's not the lowest place, but uh, those below language uses. So the emphasis on Jesus did that for people in need. Okay, Bruce, in our notes, it says harrowing of hell. What, what is that all about? Harrowing. Well, harrowing is an adjective. It means acutely distressing or acutely painful. Mm. And that is the language that's used when we talk about what in the world it means that Christ ascended into hell. It's the harrowing of hell. Mm. He did something that was distressing, uh, perhaps painful. Uh, and that's what we're trying to figure out. What does it mean, the harrowing of hell, the descent into hell? Mm. And there are three possibilities that have been mentioned by Christians through the centuries. The first is to say that this harrowing of hell really is just another way of saying that Jesus was really dead. He died. Uh, and that's uh, something that we find in the Westminster Standards, the Westminster Confession, and the Westminster Larger Catechism, and the Shorter Catechism. It takes that view. The second possibility is that it signifies the intensity of Christ's suffering. And that's the kind of language that's used by uh, John Calvin and by the Heidelberg Catechism. So later on, we'll look at both of those ways that's described in those two reform documents. And the third possibility is that Christ, after his crucifixion, he went to all the departed spirits, people who had died. And then there's a the question, does he go to everyone or just the Old Testament worthies, uh, the uh, saints that had died? And uh, that's what we're trying to figure out. It's like, well, three different possibilities and which one is it? And it's right. kind of hard to tell. Exactly. And uh, you could... Uh, draw those three things out of the two scripture texts that we use to say what's going on. Uh, the one in First Peter chapter 3 mm -hmm. and Ephesians chapter 4. So uh, that's the explanation. It's still a little confusing, still mysterious. Right. Well, maybe we'll have to wait till we're in heaven to get this one answered. And then God will say, really? That's what you're worried about? 
So we always have our feature of the archaeological tidbit. And uh, so can you uh, enlighten us? Do you have, you must have some archaeology concerning the tombs and things like that. Oh, I, I have a lot. I have so much you're going to have to stop me at some point, Kirk. I could go on and on about this. All right. I'll see if I have to uh, hit the pause button on you or something. So I had the privilege of studying under uh, Gabriel Barkai. He is the foremost authority on biblical period tombs in Jerusalem. And he was my archaeological instructor when I was there. And I uh, served under him as a staff of an archaeological dig looking at tombs from the biblical period. So uh, I've been in about 200 burial chambers in Jerusalem from the time of Jesus. That is the second temple period. Well, this really does. You are an expert on this subject. Well, I, I know a bit. Yes. So, <laughs> so the, the geology around Jerusalem is limestone and there are different grades of limestone. If you're a stone cutter, you would talk about uh, it's all limestone, but what particular type of limestone you're dealing with. There's harder grades of limestone, which are more expensive, and softer grades of limestone, which are less expensive. The Presbyterian Church in Jerusalem, because it was the Church of Scotland, and the Scots are known for being thrifty, they chose a lower grade of limestone, which has started to deteriorate. And now it's, it's uh, really um, the air pollution and whatnot has made at least one side of it a little dirty over the years since that was built in the early 20th century. I've seen that. Yes. It's full uh, of, uh, well, it's black like uh, soot from when they burned coal is what I was told. Right. And uh, that's not from when they burned coal. That's just the air pollution that's happened uh, in the last 40 years or so since I lived there. It did not look there like that when I was attending worship there at St. Andrew's Church of Scotland in Jerusalem. Oh, really? Now, the building, code of building codes of Jerusalem today uh, specify that the exteriors of all buildings must be covered in limestone. So it's a, a very nice look for the whole city as you go around. Hmm. And the limestone works was an industry in the time of Jesus. They would dig these burial tombs. Now, very poor people just you know, buried in the ground. But if you could afford it, you want to be buried in a rock-hewn tomb. Mm -hmm. And these would have, you know, a chamber, and there would be a central depression, you know, a couple of steps down to the central depression. And then you'd see uh, um, burial shelves on three sides of this, you know, if it's a, a four-sided room. Mm -hmm. So on every side except the side on which you've stepped into, to go down there. And there are two types of ways that those tombs are finished off. One of them is to have a uh, coke, or the plural is coquim. And this is a little chamber. It looks something like uh, the shape of a Twinkie, a hostess Twinkie, you know, that kind of shape where it's uh, curved on top and then flat on the sides and the bottom. Mm -hmm. And after you would prepare the body for burial, as the women tried to do for, or were planning to do for Jesus, mm -hmm. he was laid on one of these three shelves opposite the uh, entry uh, area into the burial chamber. And then after they prepared it, then you'd slide it into this hostess Twinkie-shaped uh, slot. Uh, typically, you'd have th three of those on each of the three sides, not the side that you entered into. But so very typical, you'd have, you know, the classic one would have nine, yes, 
nine of these different coquim. The second way that you would have uh, the burial chamber finished off is instead of having these coquim on the three sides, you would have uh, an archway indentation on three sides. That's called an arcosolia. Mm. That's more expensive because you could have less family members buried there, mm. right? So the tomb of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, the traditional site of Jesus' burial, it has evidence of both those types of tombs, the Coquim tomb, they can see easily. And the uh, place where Jesus was buried seems to have been an Arcosolia type tomb. So you know, a rich man would be able to afford that kind of rock hewn tomb. Or you have to be fairly well off to have any rock hewn tomb, but an Arcosolia was very, very fancy. Mm. And so you think maybe the the Joseph of Arimathea would have had uh, one of those types? Yeah, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not quite convinced that it was an Arcosolia rather than a coquine type tomb. But mm-hmm. anyway, there's discussion about that. Right. And then a, a very interesting thing happens about 200 BC where there is a secondary burial for Jewish tombs. And what you would do after about a year in that climate, after you've laid your loved ones uh, to rest, put them in the coquine or uh, on the burial shelf, all of the interior organs and all the flesh is, is uh, all deteriorated away and all you have left is bones. And after a year, they would take those bones and put them into a bone box, which is called an ossuary. Mm-hmm. And we have many examples of these ossuaries from the Second Temple period. Sometimes the ossuaries are decorated with geometric designs. If you've ever taken geometry classes, you know, you, you take a compass and then you take that same um, radius and you start making notches and uh, partial circles inside the circle that you've just drawn and you make something that looks like a five or a six pointed design. Mm-hmm. That's very common. I uh, have one or more of those. I saw one in the biblical archaeology back when they thought they had discovered one of these uh, that may have belonged to Jesus. Do you remember that? Yes, Biblical Archaeology Review magazine had an article uh, trying to trace this uh, burial box at Oshuary that had inscribed on it, uh, James, the brother of Jesus. Mm. Uh, But in addition to James, the brother of Jesus, had an indication about Jesus, a particular Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, or Jesus uh, called the Christ, or something like that. Mm It was later examined by experts, and they found out that, yeah, it's a real ossuary from the time of Jesus. Yes, it said James, brother of Jesus. But the other part where it specified which Jesus it was, mm. uh, that's the part that was uh, counterfeit. And oh, so, so. Not, not just added later, but counterfeit. Yeah, uh, added later and counterfeit. Yeah. Yes, wow. exactly. Mm. Uh, but we have discovered uh, the ossuary of somebody that was a relative of Caiaphas, of course, who was involved as a high priest and part of the trial of Jesus. And so one of the uh, sons of Caiaphas, Joseph, son of Caiaphas, we have a, an ossuary that has a, that name, Joseph, the son of uh, Caiaphas. Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, we also discovered uh, in one of these uh, burial chambers from the Second Temple period. Again, Second Temple period is from the time of Ezra and Nehemiah till, which is sixth uh, century BC, until seventy A.D. when the Temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. That's the Second Temple period. We found a ossuary that contained the bones of a man that had been crucified, 
Uh, we have the name of the man. It wasn't Jesus. Mm-hmm. That's a good thing. Right. Um, but uh, when they tried to remove the nail out of that person's ankle, they couldn't get the nail out. So he was buried with that spike, Roman spike, through his uh, ankle. And we have that preserved. I've seen pictures of that, actually. Yeah, it used to be not on display. It was kept in the uh, Rockefeller Museum in uh, Jerusalem for many years in the basement. They were afraid if they displayed it, it would cause anti-Semitism. But now that's not a concern, so now you will find that in the Israeli Museum. Wow. Yeah. So how is that for kind of the background? That is that is very complete and I think very interesting. Thank you. And you didn't even have to... Give me to shut up. I, I could sit and listen to this all day long. It's great. So we've also looked at, in each of our podcasts, our eco-confessional standards. And uh, today we have the Heidelberg Catechism and the Westminster Larger Catechism. Right. And remember from earlier on in our discussion today, we were talking about the different perspectives of the Heidelberg Catechism versus the Westminster Catechism. So here's the question number 44 from the Heidelberg Catechism. Why is there added, he descended into hell? And the answer given is, in my severest tribulation, I may be assured that Christ my Lord has redeemed me from hellish anxieties and torment by the unspeakable anguish, pains, and terrors which he suffered in his soul, both on the cross and before. And then the question 49, what benefit do we receive from Christ's ascension into heaven? And the answer, first, he is our advocate in the presence of his Father in heaven. Second, we have our flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that he, as the head, will also take us, his members, up to himself. Third, he sends us his spirit as a counter pledge by whose power we seek what is above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God and not things that are on earth. So you'll notice here um, the emphasis on pain that Jesus endured for our sakes. And and Heidelberg Catechism Catechism is very good about saying, what does it mean for us Mm. that Christ suffered? What does it mean that he descended in hell and, and interpreted here as extreme suffering? And then what does it mean that Christ is in heaven? And it gives us that uh, very little talked about doctrine that human flesh is now in heaven. Christ rose bodily, he ascended bodily, and so now bodily is at the right hand of the Father, which is a, a very interesting way to think about what Jesus has done, is doing, and yet will do for us. Mm-hmm. That uh, we have a real representative in heaven now in the presence of God who is interceding for us, who is praying for us. And and that's something that should sustain us. Mm. And Christ will return bodily from heaven. Mm. And then we will be raised and our final state will not be disembodied souls, but to have new resurrection bodies. Mm. That's excellent. The Westminster Larger Catechism, we have uh, question 50. What was Christ's humiliation after his death? Christ's humiliation after his death consisted in his being buried and continuing in a state of the dead and under the power of death until the third day, which has been otherwise expressed in these words, he descended into hell. 
again, emphasizing uh, the perspective of the Westminster standards that Christ descended into hell means that he was really dead. It's mm-hmm. like a repetition. And then question 52, how was Christ exalted in his resurrection? And the answer is, Christ was exalted in his resurrection in that not having seen corruption in death, of which it was not possible for him to be held, and having the very same body in which he suffered with the essential properties thereof, but without mortality and other common infirmities belonging to this life. Really united to his soul, he rose again from the dead, the third day by his own power, whereby he declared himself to be the Son of God, to have satisfied divine justice, to have vanquished death and him that had the power of it, and to be Lord of living and dead, all which he did as a public person, the head of his church, for their justification, quickening and grace, support against enemies, and to ensure them of their resurrection from the dead at the last day. So notice again the emphasis on the fact that Christ was raised bodily. Mm. Uh, it wasn't just a spiritual revive, uh, reviving of his soul, but uh, physical resurrection. Uh, his body not seeing corruption, and then raised and uh, uh, united with his soul. Mm. And in the similar manner, we will be raised. Right. And then question 55, how does Christ make intercession? And the answer is, Christ makes intercession by his appearing in our nature continually before the Father in heaven in the merit of his obedience and sacrifice on earth, declaring his will to have it applied to all believers, answering all accusations against them, and procuring for them quiet of conscience, notwithstanding daily failings, access with boldness to the throne of grace, and acceptance of their persons and services. Christ is really working for our sakes Mm. in heaven right now. That's very good news. It is very good news. Yeah. Something that we should remind each other about, Kirk, and just encourage each other. Yeah. Yeah, it's... It brings up, when we start talking about this bodily resurrection, that brings up a lot of questions too, doesn't it? It it does. You know, you have that very mysterious verse in the Gospel of Matthew, which talks about uh, Christ dies and there's this earthquake. Right. And then it reads, this is uh, Matthew 27, uh, starting at the end of verse 51. The earth shook, the rocks were split, the tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. After his resurrection, they came out of the tombs and entered the holy city and appeared to many. And, and that's as confusing as more confusing than what is meant by Jesus descending into hell. I mean, what the world was going on. Right. <laughs> but you'll notice there it uses the term saints. And uh, so that's uh, people that take the um, view that descending into hell means that Jesus... Um, preach the good news to departed uh, spirits, that uh, those that he rescued and brought, uh, those captives that he brought out uh, of the netherworld were the Old Testament worthies, the saints, Mm. uh, those who had trusted in God before Jesus uh, appeared on the scene. 
and that's why they started to appear in Jerusalem. But it, it, it's a very confusing kind of a, a one-time experience that happened then, and, and what do you do with that? I know. How do you put those pieces together? Right. Well, during our Apostles' Creed series, we've been doing a little study just to familiarize ourselves with the Apostles. And this week, who do we have to look at? Well, we have two because um, different Apostles of the Twelve Apostles are associated with different lines. And this is by tradition. Again, uh, as we've mentioned before, this is not a true-to-life story. This is just kind of a legend that grew up about the Apostles' Creed, that Mm -hmm. each of the Twelve Apostles wrote one of the lines. So the line descended into hell and rose again from the dead on the third day is associated with the Apostle Thomas. Now, what do you remember about Thomas, Kirk? Well, I always think that Thomas got a bad rap. And why is that? Well, he's labeled as Doubting Thomas. Yes. And I think he's just a real pragmatist. I think he was out getting foods and food and oil and making sure they're, you know, he said, we're going to, we might be hunkered down for a while. So he missed the first appearance. And then when he sees Jesus, finally, um, he makes the great confession that my Lord and my God, right? When he sees his, you know, Jesus invites him to put his hands in his side and and feel his wounds and such. A a very precise demonstration that he was really there. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting, later, uh, Thomas is the patron saint of architects who are also very precise. Um, uh, But yeah, maybe he gets a bad rap. (laughs) (laughs) Well, my middle name is Thomas, so I kind of feel like I need to, Uh, you know, stand up for the guy. So there's a very old tradition that uh, Thomas uh, took the gospel all the way to India and he was martyred there in India by being speared to death. So sometimes in Christian iconography, you'll see St. Thomas with a spear. Uh, that's how you know it's St. Thomas. He has oh, a sp- wow. holding the spear. I'll have to keep my eye out for that. Yeah, but there's very early Christian uh, a Christian community in certain parts of India, and they call themselves the Church of St. Thomas because yeah. of that. Um, and even today you have certain villages in India that speak a form of Aramaic called Syriac, Mm. Um, probably descendants of people that had received the gospel, we think, from St. Thomas. I have a book, and it's called The Gospel of Thomas. It's kind of a crazy... Oh, right. There's an apocryphal book, yeah. Yeah. It was like a holy fiction that became very popular in the second and third centuries, so you started having uh, these uh, accounts of, of different people like what would they have said? And they write this fiction. Oh, okay. So these uh, apocryphal gospels we have, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So the second apostle that we're looking at is James, the son of Alphaeus. And he's associated with the line, ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. Mm-hmm. Now, we don't know very much about James, the son of Alphaeus at all. Uh, he's sometimes called James the Less, meaning perhaps he was shorter or younger than the other James. Uh, tradition says that this second James, James the Less, James, son of Alphaeus, uh, took the gospel to Lower Egypt, and there he was uh, martyred by being crucified. So again, all of the 12 apostles except uh, Judas, well, Judas, Judas, Judas yeah. killed, him, killed himself, but, and John, John. Uh, who uh, 
apparently was not martyred, but all the other apostles were martyred for the faith. Well, as a regular feature of our Full Dig podcast, we have a C.S. Lewis quote. What do you have for us today, Bruce? Well, I have something from Mere Christianity where where C.S. Lewis talks about uh, the importance of resurrection and uh, what it means. So Lewis writes, Give up yourself, and you will find your real self. Lose your life, and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. Keep nothing back. Nothing that you have not given away will be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. Oh, that's excellent. Isn't that wonderful? It's almost a paraphrase of what, you know, it's just maybe or an expansion of what Jesus said. Uh, deny yourself. Take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. Yeah, yeah. exactly. That's very good. Well, Bruce, I do have a Reformed quote. Probably something that goes beyond just the Heidelberg Catechism and the Westminster Standards. Well, it does. Um, this is, we, we're going back to the J.I. Packer well. Right. Uh, he wrote this book, Growing in Christ, and this is a quote from him. And uh, it's kind of how he begins this section on this idea of descending into hell idea. Christians hold that the Jesus of scriptures is alive and that those who know him as Savior, Lord, and friend find in this knowledge a way through all of life's problems, dying included. For Christ leads me through no darker rooms than he went through before. He has that in quotations, so I wonder if maybe he's quoting a hymn there. It's not footnoted, so I'm not sure. Yeah, perhaps. It says, Christ leads me through no darker rooms than he went through before. And he continues on saying, having tasted death himself, he can support us while we taste it and carry us through the great change to share the life beyond death into which he himself has passed. I just found that very comforting. It is very comforting, you know, especially when we think about the problem of evil, right? If God is all good and all powerful, why does evil exist? Mm-hmm. Uh, which is a, a tough problem to wrestle with, and there are different approaches to the problem of evil. But for Christians, we have a God who is not distant from suffering, but one who suffered for us. And that gives us, I think, a, a unique perspective in looking at our own suffering. Uh, when I suffer, when I go through hard times, I know that Jesus suffered greatly for my sake. And that makes, that in itself, that knowledge makes my own suffering, well, at least I have a perspective on it. Mm. I still would rather not suffer. Right, right. Well, Eric Dickerson, do you know Eric Dickerson? I do not know Eric Dickerson. Eric Dickerson was a famous American football player, played in the NFL, very talented running back. And he went to visit his friend, Walter Payton, on his deathbed. Hmm. And Eric Dickerson asked Walter, he said, 
are you afraid to die? And after a pause, Walter Payton said, well, yeah, I guess I am. I've never done it before. (laughs) So I just think this is so comforting to know that Jesus has done it before. He He has gone before us and that he is with us. He never will leave us or forsake us. And even at our day of death. So I just, I find a lot of comfort in that. Mm. Jesus has done everything. He has pioneered the way, even the crossing from death to life. Yes. Well, Bruce, would you close us in prayer today? Love to. Let's pray. Great God, we are so thankful that Jesus went to the utmost for us. He was willing to do that willing to suffer and die for our sakes. And Jesus has rescued us. And one day we will follow where Jesus is now, in your very presence. Help us as we deal with different problems and adversities to always remember your love and that you have gone before us through adversity to victory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you, Kirk. Mm-hmm.